Good morning, folks. It's uh, Jeff McNeil uh, for episode 12 of Coast to Coast Outdoors. On this episode, I have uh, the CEO and founder of Conservation Visions, Shane Mahoney, joining us. Uh, we are going to talk about what Conservation Visions does, as well as what uh, the Wild uh, Harvest Initiative is with that uh, organization. So without further delay, I'm going to introduce Shane Mahoney. Welcome to the show, Shane. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Uh, so uh, Shane, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself. Uh, I know you're the CEO and I guess founder of uh, Conservation Visions, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, which is a global wildlife initiative founded by yourself, uh, who is a scientist, uh, a biologist as well, and a conservationist. Uh, so mm -hmm. you have quite the extensive background when it comes to uh, this uh, this realm of uh, conservation. And you know it from the grassroots right up through, um, I'm sure. So tell us a little bit about what uh, what Conservation Visions is and what, what you do with uh, Conservation Visions. Sure. Um... Well, my background is that uh, I was born and raised in Newfoundland, of course, where I still live and I've always lived. Um, and uh, for a long period of time, I held various positions with the provincial government here, including sort of the lead for wildlife research in Newfoundland and Labrador. My area of focus was really on predator-prey interactions between uh, caribou, black bears, coyotes, and lynx, um, and the whole... Uh, sort of study of why caribou populations go through these long-term cycles that they do. But I was involved in a lot of other research issues. I helped found an institute at Memorial University. I went on to take over sustainable development and science programs for the province. And uh, upon leaving government, uh, of course, I wanted to continue with my conservation work. And even when I was in government, I had a great deal of opportunity to lecture in the United States and across Canada and in other parts of the world. Um, and of course, I've, I've written a lot of articles, you know, the normal kind of thing a researcher does on the work that I did, book chapters and so on and so forth. But after I got out of government, I founded Conservation Visions because if you look at the Canadian uh, and the American context, um, you know, where we have, um, you know, 14 to 15 million hunters between the two countries that are engaged in the activity each year. You have a lot of different organizations representing individual species, like, say, a Wild Sheep Foundation or a Quality Deer Management Association. You have international organizations that focus on international hunting, such as uh, Dallas Safari Club, Safari Club International, etc. Um but what you really don't find is an organization that is trying to link international issues facing hunting and conservation with uh, the circumstances that are prevailing in Canada and the United States and vice versa to bring those issues from Canada and the United States to the rest of the world. If there's one thing that COVID has taught us, it's that the world is interconnected now in a way that it has never been not just because the virus is able to spread so effectively, but also to see how world governments can try to come together in ways to, to fight this problem. Well, it's the same way with respect to conservation issues. 
what happens in a part of Africa, what happens in a part of Europe, what happens somewhere in South America, or what happens somewhere in Russia or in Canada or the United States has a bearing. It's picked up, it's talked about, and it influences issues in other parts of the world. Um, so we are all finding that we are collectively doing good things. We're also collectively challenged about what we need to do with conservation. So I founded uh, Conservation Visions to tie those things together. So I have this research background. I am a hunter and an angler, but I'm also somebody totally in love with wildlife and with animals uh, and always have been. And I see no contradiction between those things. But I also have the scientific background and I also have the linkages with an enormous number of individuals that lead agencies in Canada and the United States and institutions. And I also have great linkages in Europe and in other parts of the world. So while I have conservation visions as my sort of home base, if you will, uh, I also serve as international liaison for the North American Wildlife Society, which is the largest group of professionals and academics we have. Um, in fact, I helped found or le led the founding of the Canadian section of the Wildlife Society. Um, I also serve as deputy president of policy and law for the International Council for the Conservation of Wildlife, which is based in, in Budapest, Hungary. Um, and I also serve as deputy chair for sustainable use and livelihoods for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. So I have, through those various roles, uh, I have intelligence coming in from those organizations, you know, the debates that are happening, the mm -hmm. things that are being published, the concerns that people have, uh, but I also have the capacity to speak to a lot of audiences through these kinds of platforms, through my other social media platforms, such as my, my, my Facebook uh, membership is quite high. Uh, I do a lot of in-house film production uh, with vi short vignettes and things of this nature, but all of this is to give a home somewhere in North America for an entity that as you pointed out in the beginning, has grassroots familiarity with the activities of hunting and angling and conservation, has a research experience in that regard, not only has deep connections across Canada and the United States, but also has connections globally. I mean, really strong connections globally. I think in that sense, Conservation Visions is actually unique. I, I don't really know of another entity uh, that sort of tries to tie all of that together. And my work on the North American model, of course, has been extensive. I just published a new book on that with Dr. Valerius Geis, uh, the first book ever on the North American model. So that has given me the opportunity uh, to speak extensively in Canada and the United States and to build big partnerships, which we'll come to later, on things such as the Wild Harvest Initiative. So Conservation Visions gives advice to governments, it gives advice to industry, it gives advice to non-governmental organizations. It also communicates uh, the role between all forms of sustainable use, including hunting and angling, um, as an incentive-driven component of conservation for wildlife and fisheries around the world. Now, with that, Shane, I know uh, it must be difficult trying to get all these organizations to, to come together, obviously, as one or work collaboratively together. Uh, do you, do you find that to be a challenge on the on the home front for the most part? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, many of the organizations that I'm dealing with, I intersect with them uh, in sectors that are positively disposed towards, you know, conservation and positively disposed towards sustainable use, such as hunting and angling, for example. Um, so within them, uh, there are sectors that are highly supportive and agreeable. But of course, some of them are very big organizations, and they they have a wide diversity of views that range all the way, in some cases, from very strong animal rights perspectives, for example, to more moderate, we might say, uh, you know, antagonism towards sustainable use activities. In other words, people just don't like hunting, mm -hmm. for example, uh, all the way up to people in the middle who are trying to figure out how to deal with this, you know, how to what do they really feel about these issues? Um, I have had a long historic kind of career uh, quest, which has been to try to bring these kinds of different views together. Because despite all the conflicts I get embroiled in, mm -hmm. I do really believe that fundamentally most human beings you know, are in agreement on certain basic things. We all want a healthy planet. We all want clean water. We want clean air. We want for wildlife to thrive. We want for natural areas to exist. We want, be, we want to be able to enjoy them. So there's a great deal of common ground. And uh, unfortunately, you know, human beings have a tendency to dichotomize. It's not a new phenomenon. It's, it's always been with us. You know, it's either or. It's us and them. That's you know, and we see that in our, you know, we see that everywhere. We see that in Newfoundland. We see that in Cape Breton. We see that in, you know, we see that in Germany. We see, it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a universal phenomenon. And the problem with that, of course, is that once people choose a side, in quotation marks, they then forage in that space, right? So if I'm against hunting, uh, as an example, I tend to read things that are reinforcing my views. I tend to meet with people who feel the same way, who reinforce my views. If I'm a supporter of hunting, I tend to interact with people who are also supportive of hunting or who engage in hunting activity. And I read things of that nature. And the problem is we have relatively few institutions and individuals who really want to try to look at this in, a, in, a, in an overarching kind of way. The other problem with the either or is that each group feels they're absolutely correct and that they have the moral high ground, right? Uh, the hunting community, for example, will say, you know, we have led so much of conservation. We contribute so much financially. We volunteer for things. We lobby governments for wildlife. We, you know, we do these kinds of things. Well, when I sit in an audience where there are a lot of people opposed to hunting, they essentially say the same things, you know. We are the ones who are advocating for wildlife. We want all animals to be treated well. We don't like to see animals killed. You know, mm -hmm. we lobby governments. We provide money. We have big fundraisers. And if you get trapped in that, it becomes very difficult to see really meaningful progress. Mm -hmm. But in my view, there is a way forward. And the way forward is what I have termed the conservation necklace which is if you can imagine a necklace that goes from the back of the neck, obviously, to, 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 to have, be suspended in front of a, of a person. If you try to locate on each link in that necklace, if you put 
side by side the most extremely antagonistic views. You will have no hope of ever building such a necklace. But if you put the really opposing views, one at the very back and one at the very bottom, and sort of populate that with nearest neighbors around that circle, you have some chance of building that kind of alliance. Because there are many groups. Let's take the National Wildlife Federation in the United States, the biggest conservation organization possibly in the world, if you look at their six million members, uh, five to six million, including their affiliates. And yet they have a huge diversity of organizations that are members. You have groups that are very pro-sustainable use or hunting and angling, mm -hmm. foraging. You have other groups that are very doubtful about that. They don't like this too much. But somehow that big ship manages to sail along with you know all different kinds of people on their decks. Um, and they've been around for a very, very long time and are highly successful. So we have examples of where this is already working to an extent. What we need to do is to find a way to make it much more common. And let me say this, um, this is not to say that the hunting community uh, or the angling community are saints in this regard. Hmm. You know, there, there are, as in any community, in our community, if I can use that term. Badass we have, in every bunch. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have people willing to talk, willing to listen to different perspectives. You have other people who just close that door immediately and say, we've done it all. You know, we're, we're the good guys and girls. Um, and the rest of those people are, they're insane. You know, they have bad politics. Uh, uh, they're not real. They don't get it. Yet we know as hunters and anglers that protected areas, for example, where maybe hunting and angling are not allowed, those efforts have their place in conservation. We need some protected areas. Of course we do. There are certain places that need to be protected. Seabird colonies, for example. You can't just have seabird colonies open to everybody to traipse around. You've got tens of thousands of birds nesting side by each across a landscape. You know, there's certain places that need strict protection. On the other hand, uh, we cannot treat the whole world as a zoo. You know, we have seven and a half billion people, uh, which is the human animal, that is constantly taking from nature. We have no other place to go. Like, you know, th there's no other place for us to go. It's not like we have an alternative, you know, another world where we can go to survive. Um, so uh, essentially, we are going to take from this earth uh, inevitably. And the question is, how do we do that in balance that absolutely protects the most important places, the most vulnerable people, and that still enables the world and humanity to utilize the Earth's resources, but do it in a sustainable way. I remain, after many years lobbying for this kind of an approach and failing, uh, by and large, uh, I remain optimistic that this can be done. And furthermore, I'm absolutely convinced that if we don't do it, conservation has no future. Because if we just simply keep this as an oppositional engagement and each side simply gets stronger and stronger and constantly fights with one another, there is obviously no future in that. And you know what, Shane, I agree on that one. I've seen firsthand, uh, I've, I may admit that uh, I've used that article that you spoke about there where 
Some hunters say, yes, we do a lot for conservation with purchases of licensing. Uh, ATVs here in Nova Scotia, for an example, the Red Plate uh, Ghost Trail Development. There's a whole pile that uh, hunters contribute. And uh, when you look at, uh, as uh, I'll put it in my words, uh, a lot of people get narrow-minded sometimes, and they don't think outside the box uh, when it comes to anything outdoors. Uh, I, I've seen it firsthand myself where we have certain individuals with within the hunting community and outdoor community where, hey, I've done it for 50 or 60 plus years. We're going to keep doing it that way. And yes, there may be merits to uh, garner change, but we don't want to to do that because they feel as like it's an infringement on stuff that they had done for for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, which it's it's kind of uh, I've seen that uh, discussion and I've taken part in that and sometimes Shane I I feel myself personally like it's you're trying to push a, a boulder up a, a slippery slope sometimes mm -hmm. because it's mm -hmm. a it's a hard argument to to win with some individuals unfortunately. Well, and I don't think you know I don't think we're going to win the argument with everybody and I. Uh, you know, I think we just have to recognize that at the end of the day, you know, what does what does cooperation look like? Cooperation does not look like a room with everybody with a beaming smile. What cooperation looks like is a room full of people that on their faces, there remain questions. You know, they're not sure it's the right way. It's, uh, they're still thinking about it, but they've agreed to make one further step forward. So I think we have to be realistic in that, you know, even in seeking cooperation, there's going to be conflict. It's not as though that's the magic solution and it all goes away. But I do firmly believe that, you know, we all change over time. There were things that were acceptable 50 years ago, for example, that all of us no longer accept or the vast, vast majority don't accept. We go back 100 years, that's even more true. We go back 150 years, that's even more true. Um, so even while we are opposed in some of these discussions, all of us are shifting in a certain direction as well. Um, and some of the forces that are now surrounding us, you know, the massive loss of, of wildlife that we have globally, uh, problems like invasive species, for example, Problems of pandemics, you know, these, these wildlife human-related diseases. Problems such as deforestation in major parts of the world, particularly in places like the Amazon and so on. Uh, the changing climate that's around us, which, you know, you don't have to tell any fishermen that climate is changing. They might disagree at the head of the wharf over what's responsible for changing. That's true. But, but they're not going to argue, you know, anybody who's living in the outdoors and making their way on the land or sea, you don't have to tell them that the climate's changing. It's only people locked up in, you know, in, in some sort of uh, bubble somewhere that, you know, thinks climate's not changing. It is changing. Uh, and leaving aside the arguments as to how or why. So I think these big forces are also making people change. I'll give you an example. Um, in the 1940s and 50s, like many other places, Newfoundland, for example, brought in uh, mink farming 
-hmm. It was a way to generate some employment, we thought, and to, you know, to bring some opportunity to local communities. It fit in with the lifestyle, the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, in a way, of, of Newfoundlanders. You know, we've been on this island for 500 years, practically. Well, certainly for 300, 400, 400 years. Um, and uh, so it all seemed to make sense. But one of the absolute strange things that happened is somewhere along the line, we conceived of the idea of how to feed these mink. And one of the things we did was we actually used blackfish, which are pilot whales, to feed these mink. Now, I can tell you that if you, uh, 50 years later and more, were to suggest in this province that we use pilot whales to feed a fur farm, whether you agree with fur farms or not, it's not the issue, uh, no one would agree. Everyone would say, no, we're absolutely not going to do that. So this is an example of where everybody moves on a certain issue. Mm -hmm. Take looking at large whales like humpbacks and so on. Big industry in, in your neck of the woods, big industry in our neck of the woods. You know, a lot of people do it. A lot of tourists come to see them and so on and so forth. You know, we weren't even thinking about that 50 years ago. And if we were thinking about whales and ways to generate employment or, you know, to, rate, to benefit incomes or something of that nature, we were thinking about harvesting the whales. Now, I'm not, this is not an anti-whaling statement. It's just a statement that we have moved in society. And if you asked most people today in rural Newfoundland, in places like Bonavista and Bay Bulls and St. John's and, and other parts of the island, and people in Notre Dame Bay and so on, who make their living and who love to see these whales when they're going to their cabins and so on, to tell them that we would start, you know, instead of that kind of industry, we'd go back to, you know, harvesting whales. I think most people would probably say no. Even the people who are hunters and anglers would might say no. So, you know, it's not like any of us live trapped in amber, right? All these discussions, like your podcast and other things, all these influence public opinion in some way. Oh, for sure. You're changing, you know? 20 years from now, you're going you're gonna to have some different views on some things than you, than you have today. It's the way of the world. Uh, right. You know what, Shane? I don't think I have to wait 20 years. There's some uh, not. <laughs> there's some different opinions there that I have on certain topics, but I try to be diplomatic about it, to be quite frank. Uh, yeah. and, uh, I, I don't look at just my point of view. I accept others' points of views and opinions uh, to yeah. try to further the, the subject or uh, coalition to, to try to make things a little bit better, obviously. Uh, I'm not anti anything when it comes to a lot of stuff. Uh, it's uh, it's more or less look and see what we can do to to, to work together. Obviously, uh, yeah. It's it like I said. It's a it's a tough sell uh, to, uh, to to a lot of people. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we've uh, it's do do I have all the answers? No, I'm like everybody else. That's uh, one thing I don't have is all the answers. But uh, to hear from individuals like yourself, Shane, and others with uh, an extensive wealth of knowledge, obviously, uh, uh, it's it, it's great to better form an opinion, obviously, or uh, a, a judgment uh, based on what you hear from somebody that has the background, has the, the grassroots aspect, and all of that combined into one, because you get every perspective, I find, with an individual like yourself. It's just not, hey, Here's the bio, uh, 
the science side of things, you've, you've encompassed it all to uh, better give a, a better understanding and outlook on uh, specific topics regarding conservation, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, what, uh, what advice would you offer wildlife organizations across Canada or the U.S. or elsewhere uh, that uh, want to form uh, a larger coalition to educate the public and conservation matters more, uh, more or less. So that could be anything from fishing, hunting, uh, protected lands, anything like that. Uh, what advice would you give them, I guess, as an icebreaker to uh, try to form this larger coalition? Well, I think the, the, the way to start these coalitions, of course, is to not start from your own position. So let's say you're a hunting and angling group. Um, I don't think the way to start trying to build that coalition is to say we're hunters and anglers and therefore we want uh, you know, people to come into a coalition. I think what we have to start with are those basic uh, drivers, those basic platforms of interest that all people have, such as clean water or you know, healthy habitats and, and functioning ecosystems. I mean, um, you know, landscapes that are that even if they are being used, they're being used in a way that doesn't, you know, absolutely destroy their aesthetic and doesn't prevent people from enjoying them. So, I mean, I think you start at those very broad principles because I believe the vast majority of people want those things. Um, and then one's own personal engagement, whether I'm an, a strong advocate, which I am for protected areas, or I'm a strong advocate for hunting and angling, which I am, you know, that comes later. What, what, what starts is, you know, we want abundant wildlife. Every single one of us is watching, with the exception of some species, every single one of us is watching a decline in wildlife. I don't care where you live, in this country or any other country. If you haven't seen a decline in wildlife, you're not looking widely enough. Because if you include insects and pollinators and shorebirds and, you know, Yes, we may have lots of some species. We may have lots of moose on the island of Newfoundland or lots of deer in a certain section or, you know, uh, lots of herring gulls in a certain place or something of this nature. But I can tell you in my lifetime, I have seen massive losses in wildlife in Newfoundland and Labrador, massive losses when I include pollinators and shorebirds and, and, and things and passerines, for example, small perching birds, migratory birds. And, you know, like Cape Breton, or like Nova Scotia generally, or PEI, uh, you know, I, I, I don't come from a highly industrialized place. You know, there's still an enormous amount of wild space in Newfoundland on the island, and particularly in Labrador, right? Uh, we have very few people. We have entire coasts that are essentially isolated, like the south coast of the island here, for example. Massive interiors in Labrador that no one, in some cases, people have never seen. And so, you know, yet I see these massive changes in some species that I, even as a research biologist and scientist who has worked in that domain, you know, led that work for 33 years here in government, I cannot explain them. The habitats look to be still there. Uh, many of them are undisturbed. There are no people there. There are no mines. There are no roads. There's, you know, mm -hmm. it's not obvious. So I think all of us have some sense, if we look at the natural world at all, 
whether that's just walking in the evening times and looking out to sea or whatever it might be, all of us have some awareness that the world around us is changing. And for wildlife, it's not for the better. And so let's start from there. You know, we have 30-odd thousand African lions, 30-odd thousand. That's it. That's all. That's not much in this Left in the world. 30,000. It might be 33, 34, whatever. That's, that's about what we have left in the wild. And they're only in Africa now. Of course, at one time, they extended well beyond. But they are only in Africa and, we only, and only in, some, in, in a few countries in Africa. Um, and that's all we have left. You know, this is, a, this is a huge issue. You look at other iconic species like rhinos and the trouble that they are in. But then, you know, you come here to North America, we have a long list of species that are endangered or threatened. We have huge problems with, with uh, invasive species. You know, we all have ch these challenges, yet we all want abundant wildlife. How do we get there? I mean, I think that's the only way to build coalitions. And unfortunately, we don't have very many organizations that start from that point. I firmly believe we need a lot of new organizations. So I hope somebody who's out there is listening is going to go out and form one because most of our organizations grew up along these two pathways. We're in favor of using wildlife. We're not in favor of using wildlife, right? That's, the, you know, so the institutions, the NGOs and so on have populated different branches of that tree. We really need to start with these big picture items. And, uh, and we also really need to think about children because, you know, we are going to leave them uh, a very, very different world. Um, the question is how different. And for wildlife, the question is really, do we want to, do we want to give one ounce of depletion that we don't have to give to the next generations with respect to wildlife? And I think the answer for most caring, normal, decent people of any race, religion, language, ethnicity, would be that no, they do not. They want to leave as much of a, as good a world as they possibly can to their sons, their daughters, their grandchildren, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I would start at those two places. What kind of world do we want to leave to children, and what are the big items, whether you're a hunter or an angler or an animal rights activist or an anti-hunting activist, you know, what are the big things that you want to see in this world? That's where we have to start. You have to leave them a legacy there that's either as good, if not better than what it was originally when I first yeah. came, obviously. And yeah. We've, we, we have come a long way, Shane, uh, considering past practices, obviously. And, uh, and with the formation of uh, best management practices for uh, hunters and anglers, obviously, and trappers. I can't forget trappers yep. because that's what fundamentally built Canada, that and the, yep. the railway, obviously. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's kind of a give and take, I guess, when it comes to a lot of things because you need one in order to make the economy and vice versa. And over time, uh, we've, we've seen, uh, uh, well, we're seeing it currently now where the economy and food insecurities and everything is playing a big role in, 
in things. And uh, I, I foresee a lot of people that may have been hunters, harvesters, and gatherers prior, but have left that because food, there was no food insecurities and there was no, nobody ever thought of COVID-19, obviously. But uh, now, uh, now that it's here, I foresee a lot more people re-engaging in their past, uh, past practices with, uh, with that, obviously. Uh, now, Shane, I've got a couple of uh, viewer comments here, uh, if we can take a couple of them. Uh, uh, we've got uh, Leo Paul uh, Hashi. Uh, what is Shane's outlook on the necessary, uh, necessity of hunting and trapping in Canada in today's world? Well, I think that we have um, an opportunity right now in particular to articulate that question in a way that we probably didn't even before COVID. I mean, I think one thing that COVID has indicated is that self-reliance and sustainability are linked and also that the shorter, in many cases, the food chain that we can develop and the shorter the product chain that we can develop, the better. Now, these longer food chain uh, uh, provisioning systems provide a lot of places where the link can be broken and where a virus, for example, or some other crisis can take hold. So I think with respect to uh, the necessity, uh, I think for individual people, this can be a, a very important thing in their lives because it can actually be a major contributor to, for example, their own food security, the food security of their family, and also the food security for for others that they know, their friends, their colleagues, and so on and so forth. I think the issue of trapping, you know, we we have seen a huge amount of controversy around the issue of trapping over time, but we've also seen major efforts to to keep the industry alive, such as the humane trapping movement and all the changes that we brought to that industry over time. And, you know, the harvest of wild animals for their products, such as fur and so on, you know, is a sustainable practice. I mean, it can be done sustainably. Uh, and many people will say, well, it's, it's a cruel kind of practice. It shouldn't be undertaken. We don't need the fur because we can come up with alternatives, you know, from industrialized uh, products, you know. But if one looks at the, the, the ecological footprint of providing similar products, non-fur or fake fur, for example, versus real fur, one gets a very different impression of what is actually sustainable and what is appropriate. Furthermore, I think with regard to the sort of necessity of this, traditionally in Canada and the United States and in other parts of the world, uh, the hunter and angler community and the trapping community, uh, both for indigenous peoples and for non-indigenous peoples, those communities have been very strong as a force for the conservation of wildlife. Yes, there's been a certain amount of self-interest involved because, you know, they wanted to acquire animals for food or for fur or for employment or, or whatever it might be. Um, uh, but nevertheless, the truth remains that the voices have been strong in influencing conservation programs. We cannot afford to lose any voice for conservation on this planet right now, I can tell you. Not a single voice can we lose. So from my perspective, another necessity is to keep that voice alive by keeping people engaged in these activities. And I point out something else here. I don't want to make it too simplistic, 
But often there is quite a divide between how large numbers of people in urban centers who have lived for a generation or more urban lifestyles, there's often a very considerable difference between their viewpoints on many of these issues and people who live in rural parts of any country, whether it is Africa or, or, or Canada or the United States, South America, it doesn't matter. And, you know, we have to realize that people who live away from urban centers, and that's a lot of people, sure is. Uh, they, they have requirements and needs that are most effectively met by their harvesting renewably, sustainably from the natural world around them. Um, and the, the options are not as many for them in terms of employment or in terms of food supply, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I don't want a world set up where, you know, there's this dichotomy between those who have and tell those who don't have as much what they should or should not be able to do, uh, particularly when it's impairing their lives. So I think another necessity of these activities in Canada, there is a historical legacy, as you point out. But I think another necessity is just that rural people, whether on the coast of Newfoundland or in northern British Columbia or anywhere else in this country, in the Yukon, the territories, First Nations and non-First Nations, mm -hmm. those people have the opportunity to harvest sustainably from nature, which in one way or another, as I point out, every human being is harvesting from the natural world whether we're taking landscapes to produce industrialized agriculture and displacing wildlife as a result of that, or a man or a woman is going out with their fly rod or their net or their hunting rifle or whatever it might be that the laws allow. All of those people are harvesting from nature, but the rural people, the local rural people, do not have the option of always going to a fine restaurant or a any number of stores that are producing organic food. And when it comes to health, let me finally add this. Why is it also a necessity? The finest food in the world that we can take is the food that comes from the natural world that remains wild. And hunting and angling and trapping to some extent, because some of those animals are consumed, of course, um, these are providing people with a healthy lifestyle choice. Mm -hmm. So from a necessity point of view in a world preoccupied with health, both emotional health and physical health, and preoccupied with foods that are beneficial to people, I think you can look, you don't have to look any further than hunting and angling and these other activities that, are, that occur to find what is the healthiest lifestyle that you can have. So I think for all those reasons, it remains a necessity. And of course, in some cases, we will find that some wildlife populations, which are more productive than others. Some wildlife populations require harvesting. I mean, they really require harvesting. We have overpopulations of deer in some places. We have overpopulations of geese in some places. And there's a lot of conflict around these things, a lot of human lives and expense associated with mm -hmm. it. So I think that's another reason why these activities still have a place in modern society. No, that's, uh, I couldn't agree more with, uh, with that. Shane, uh, I know uh, Gary Geddes here uh, has commented, and uh, I think uh, it's it's directed to you there to, for a question. Does Shane have an opinion on the future outlook on the moose and woodland caribou in Newfoundland? Positive and or negative outlook on the population? 
Yeah, I mean, with regard to uh, starting with the caribou populations, um, you know, one one advantage that Newfoundland and Labrador has in this big problem with caribou, which is, of course, a Canada-wide phenomenon, right? We have declining populations in many parts of Canada of many of the forms of, of caribou. But one of the advantages Newfoundland and Labrador does have is that there has been a long, long history of research into what drives and moves those caribou populations along, both in Labrador with big herds like the George River, for example, with smaller woodland herds like, you know, the red wine and, and, and so on, and the Mealy Mountains. And then, of course, on the island of Newfoundland, the many herds we have here. And what we know is that caribou populations cycle over a very long wave. It's a 60 to 90 year period that goes from quite high populations to extremely low population numbers. And this has been part of the caribou biology for as long as we are able to trace it back. So to some extent, we have to face the fact that we are now, we have now entered one of these latest troughs in terms of the numbers of caribou. We know from that research over many, many decades that the recovery of these caribou populations can take a long time, particularly if they go extremely low. So take the George River herd in Labrador, which has gone from over 700,000 animals down to less than 12. Unfortunately, it's going to be many, many decades before we see a recovery in that population. There is no question. On the island, you know, we went from 100 to 110,000 at our peak. We went down to uh, a population of you know, 30,000, maybe less. We invested $20 million in, the last, in, a, in a massive five-year enterprise to understand what had happened there. There's no question that the caribou population declined as a result of food supply, that it was a, what we call a density-dependent thing. The population got too high. Uh, caribou are dependent on certain forms of forage, such as lichens, that take a long time to recover. What we don't know about the island herds, in my mind at this point, is whether they will continue to decline because sometimes caribou drop and then they rest and they drop again. Sometimes they drop, they rest, and they recover. And we're never quite certain where we are in that cycle. But I think the caribou populations, even on the island, are going to take some time to come back to what I experienced, for example, in my research when every day that I walked on that land, every day I walked, I saw dozens, if not hundreds of animals, no matter where I was, every single day, uh, a phenomenon that you know, you'd be hard pressed to do, to find uh, today. So unfortunately, I think low numbers of caribou for a period of time is the best that we can hope for. And hopefully the caribou populations on the island do not even fall further. Because if we fall as far on the island as the George River did in Labrador, we'll be down to a straggling few number of animals. And by the way, just as a relation between our provinces here, when we had our last major decline of caribou on the island of Newfoundland around 1910 to 1920, Nova Scotia had lost their caribou at that time and applied to the government of Newfoundland and Labrador for five animals. And the government of Newfoundland wrote them back and said, we're sorry, but we cannot afford to even give you five animals. So this is not the first time we have entered these waters. Um, the real question is how they will recover. With regard to moose, moose are a completely different animal. Moose are a weed species. Moose will be attracted to disrupted landscapes that have been disrupted by fire, by logging, by insect kill, 
they're very much attractive to the early earlier serial stages where you know new growth comes back after those disruptions they can explode unlike caribou which will have only one calf moose can have two they can have three i've even seen one cow in my career with four babies which is quite extraordinary um and uh that means they have an explosive capacity when they're producing at that rate, you know, to, to increase. Again, the thing with moose is, especially in a place where you do not have wolves. And remember, the island of Newfoundland is, is quite different from other places because we do not have wolves. We also do not have winter tick, which is a, hopefully it will never come here because that will cause real problems. But because we don't have those two things, we primarily have black bears foraging on calves. Uh, some people talk about coyotes, but believe me, coyotes don't kill very many moose calves. I can tell you that right now. That's that's a myth. They do kill a scattered one, but that's it. And a scattered lynx will kill a scattered. But overall, the only predator we have on moose on this island are black bears on the calves when they're less than six weeks of age. And that means that the real uh, pressure controlling or regulating moose populations on the island is recreational hunting. Right, that's 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 all that's out there. There aren't wolf packs running around everywhere, picking off our moose as they are in, in other parts of Canada. So the moose population, you know, has also gone through different, you know, peaks and troughs over time, gradually increasing from its introduction early in the 20th century um, to the island because moose are not native here. I think what you'll see with moose, as we've always seen, is a patchwork. Some areas moose will do fairly well on the island at the same time that moose are declining in other areas. And so there'll always be this kind of out of balance, partly because of moose numbers themselves, particularly in inaccessible areas, and partly because of erratic events like fires, uh, insect outbreaks that you know, it may kill uh, tree species that they rely on. Uh, we have, of course, far less logging than we used to have and a lot of people will say, because of the pulp and paper industry being depressed, a lot of people will say that's that's a good thing because they don't see the harvesting activity going on. But let me tell you, uh, logging uh, was one of the reasons why we were able to have such high numbers of moose in Newfoundland because, of course, logging clears out mature forest and allows that early stage growth to come in. So I think with moose populations, uh, it will vary too much to get into here, but it will vary very much by a more local kind of circumstance than with respect to the caribou populations on the island. Well, I know you mentioned there about the, the woodland caribou in Cape Breton. Uh, I know, Shane, uh, from my research uh, with uh, it regards to moose and that uh, and caribou, back here in uh, Cape Breton, obviously, they tried in 1972 to reintroduce them, and uh, unfortunately, it just didn't. Uh, didn't catch uh, for the caribou, obviously. Now the moose, are, the moose uh, are a different story. Obviously, in Cape Breton, they had five come from uh, Elk Island in Alberta, and uh, that uh, they flourished uh, to the point. Uh, but uh, currently, they've they've been having their own ups and downs. Uh, last year, we were estimated at thirteen hundred uh, moose in Cape Breton. Now this year, here after a study. Uh, and I'm still waiting to see the numbers on that. Uh, to do comparisons, obviously, uh, because not all of our highland area was uh, was covered under the study, and we're just trying to figure out which part, uh, 
was studied, which one wasn't uh, in comparison to years past. But uh, this year here, they're saying we have a boom of 2,300. Uh, so, but that's still a far cry considering the numbers went from 6,700 uh, prior to 2004 to 2004 to being 47. And that the fluctuation is just, uh, it amazes me to be quite frank uh, with uh, mm. regards to moose, obviously. Uh, well, you know, you know, one thing that people need to, your listeners need to realize is that populations of wild animals will go through ups and downs regardless of our intervention. You know, I, I, I can show you places on the island of Newfoundland where most populations at one time were, were, were so abundant that, um, you know, if we were radio collaring moose, we could have, you know, and we wanted to get 25 calves, for example, we probably could have gotten those 25 calves and at the base of a single hill. And I can show you places like that that are totally inaccessible, not hunted by outfitting clients or not hunting by local residents and so on, where 25 years later, <clears throat> there was not a moose to be seen. Mm -hmm. There was no logging, there was no, nothing explained it except that the moose population took what forage was there. And from our eye, it may look like it's still there, but from the moose's eye and belly, it is not. And those populations just die off and then they, they move away from those areas. So there'll always be fluctuations. The challenge for wildlife management, of course, is to, is to try to intervene intelligently at the right phase of those changes in numbers and to maximize the sustainable offtake. So when you have a moose population that comes into an area 15 years after a fire, let's say in Newfoundland, and a lot of the cows are twinning, a lot of babies being born and a lot of them survive because we don't have wolves again uh, that's a time when you can harvest that population quite high after a while that moose population will rise the best forage will be taken females will stop producing twins most of them will only produce a single baby then the next phase in that the females will be older before they produce a baby so instead of producing a baby as a two-year-old they'll probably be three years old before they'll produce a calf and then they'll skip pregnancies. So they'll have a calf one year, but instead of having a calf every year, they'll only have it every second year or every second or third year. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you can't harvest that population nearly as hard unless you want to drive it down. And the real trick is to keep those wildlife populations at a point relative to the best optimal habitats that you have where you can keep harvesting them at the highest rate. And generally speaking, we know that's at about 60%. And when we tested this with the woodland caribou on the island of Newfoundland, with the, one of the largest studies that has ever been conducted, 14 masters and PhD students working simultaneously, we found full confirmation of that. The caribou population began to get in trouble when it exceeded 60% of what its peak was. It reached a peak of about 100,000, 110,000. At 60,000 caribou on this island, they were doing very well. As soon as they overshot that and began to rise up higher, that was when the body weights of the calves started to decline, the size of the females started to decline, the number of antler points that males had started to decline. It was striking. So, but you have to have good data to be able to do that. That's the other that's, challenge. That's for sure. Now, Shane, I want to touch on the, the wild harvest initiative uh, mm -hmm. that you have uh, uh, extensively uh, talked about in many videos I've seen on your YouTube channel, obviously, for those viewers that uh, 
aren't aware that uh, you do have a YouTube channel there with uh, a number of videos and lectures and speeches that you have done over time. But uh, tell us a little bit about the, the Wild Harvest Initiative. And mm -hmm. I know I have a document here that I'm going to bring up on the screen as well. Yeah. So about five years ago, uh, I was trying to think of um, some way to talk about these issues of conservation and hunting and sustainable use and so on in a way that would matter to people who weren't necessarily directly engaged, number one. Uh, maybe even to people who were opposed to these activities, but also to try to rejuvenate the community of, of hunters and anglers in Canada and the United States by talking about something that we all care about. And I suddenly started to say, well, what would be something that everybody would care about? And I started, I came up with the idea of food. Mm -hmm. So then I said, well, obviously somebody uh, at some point in time, looked at what the total food harvest by recreational hunters and anglers has been in Canada or in Canada and the United States. My initial research showed that no such work had ever been done. And I frankly, I didn't believe that. So I contracted some people to actually investigate this further. And what I found, to my astonishment, is that never in the history of Canada and the United States has anyone ever attempted to 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 bring together and to analyze and interrogate all the information we have on the harvest of wildlife and fish in our two countries. More significantly, I could not find a single expert, and I am friends with many of them. And so this is not a criticism. I mean, it's just a statement of fact for your viewers. I could not find anyone nor any publication that would tell me how many species are actually harvested in Canada and the United States and fished for in Canada and the United States. And certainly no one who could tell me how many animals of a single species, say white-tailed deer or moose or elk or ducks or whatever it might be, was actually harvested. So I conceived of what is the largest investigation of its kind in the world, which is this Wild Harvest Initiative. And the idea behind it is to pull together all of the recreational harvest data that occurs for wildlife and fish in both Canada and the United States from all jurisdictions, all states, all provinces, all territories, et cetera. And uh, to not only quantify that, so to show how many animals, but to also using body weight information and consumable weight information to figure out exactly how many pounds of edible protein we are actually gathering as a result of that. So the first thing, total numbers, total amount of food that we are harvesting. The third thing that we wanted to find out was, okay, once we know those numbers, what's that worth? So if Jeff had all of that meat mm -hmm. and he was able to sell it and it was equatable to say chicken or beef or pork, you know, just at those simple comparisons, what would all that food be worth? And then to work with economists to say, but this is a special food. This has no hormones. This has no antibiotics. This has no sort of pelletized feed or, or, or anything of this nature. We need industrial agriculture. But the fact of the matter is these animals don't have that. They're naturally grown. These are the pure organic food substances. So if you had that kind of meat and you were going to sell it in today's world, preoccupied with health and nutrition and all that, 
what would it be worth? Uh, the next thing we want to know is, okay, let's say hunting and angling disappear tomorrow. Now, there's between 40 and 45 million people, 40 to 45 million people in Canada and the United States that recreationally hunt or fish each year, every year. 40 to 45 million. That's no sideshow. So the question is, if that ended for any reason, uh, fell out of fashion, uh, it was legislated out of existence, whatever might be the issue, what would it cost us to replace that food? What would be the carbon footprint of replacing it? How much land would we have to take? How much? Uh, how, how many insecticides? How many pesticides? How many? How, how many things of that nature would we have to introduce to the environment to replace this amount of food that's being gathered by forty to forty-five million people? And the other thing I wanted to know is: okay, if I live in Nova Scotia, or I live in rural BC, or I live in rural Montana, or I live wherever I live and I hunt and fish, there's one thing I can guarantee you. I don't need to know you. I don't need to know your name. I don't need to know your sex, your gender, your age. I don't need anything about you. And I can tell you that one thing you're going to do with that wild food is you're going to share it. That's absolutely 100% certain. Now, you may mostly share it with your family. That could be your wife or your husband or your children, and you know. But you're also most likely going to share that with your extended family. Your, you know, your, your uncles, your aunts, your grandparents, what, whatever it might be. And most likely you're going to go even further than that. You're going to share some of it with your neighbors and your friends across the street and your colleagues at work. Now, get, be understanding. I'm not saying that everybody is totally dependent on that little gift. Mm -hmm. But the point is that if you look at 40 to 45 million people who are, who are harvesting that wild food, and you even think that four that they have they share that with four people. All of a sudden, we're talking about a high percentage of Canada and the United States that actually consume that food. And if you consume that wild food, if you take that wild food from Jeff or from Shane or from anyone else that's out there, you obviously have some kind of positive disposition towards Jeff and Shane and towards that wild food. In other words, you are, whether you hunt or fish or not, you are, in some sense, one of our existing supporters or our future supporters. That's true. So <clears throat> this program that Conservation Visions has launched and now has 35 major partners, including Bass Pro, and the Cabela Family Foundation, and the Wild Sheep Foundation, the Guides and Outfitters of British Columbia. You can see them all listed at the end of that. We have the powerhouses, the National Wildlife Federation in the United States. We have the powerhouses, the Dallas Safari Clubs, the SCIs, the Wild Sheep Foundations, the Quality Deer Management Associations, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundations, and so on. We have the powerhouses that are engaged in these activities in industry, and in the NGO community. And we have five state governments currently wow. that are members of this alliance. And we are just about to bring on uh, Alaska now, uh, the state of Alaska as another state government supporter of this activity. The World Conservation Union, the biggest organization in the world is a partner in this. This is a phenomenal study that is not only gaining traction, but gaining notoriety and attention from a lot of people around the world because harvesting sustainably wild meat is important to a lot of people. 
So the Wild Harvest Initiative was launched. We have gathered all the data. We have built a massive database. We have analysts working on this, statisticians and, and uh, quantitative people analyzing this data. We have major social media programs about to be launched. We have actually working very closely with a Nova Scotia company, Revolve, which is a, a marketing and full okay. service yeah. communication firm. They've been doing some great work with us. With respect to this, they are actually the, the company that designed the very brochure that you're showing here. We have a network of international and uh, North American colleagues working on this. And you will soon start to see the results of this slowly being released in a long-term drip fashion into many places, social media, more orthodox media like the print media and so on and so forth, television, film, and many other ways. And so I would encourage any of your listeners and viewers to this podcast to really you know, get in touch with Conservation Visions if they have an interest in this. We have a brand new website that's up and running with respect to the Wild Harvest Initiative uh, and our own Conservation Visions uh, website. We're looking for stories and for writers and for testimonials and things of this nature about people who are harvesting this wild food. And I really believe that if there's a future for hunting and angling uh, in Canada and the United States, and with all that goes with that, that we've talked about on this podcast, I think the one certain thing that we can stand on is the fact that we consume the animals that we harvest and we share that food. Everything else, even the conservation arguments per se, are not going to be as strong in convincing the general public about the reliability and the validity of these activities as food will be. You know what, Shane, that's, that's, that's a quite, quite the project. And to try to bring all that together, I believe you started this in 2015. Yeah, we, st the idea was first laid out in 2015. And, uh, obviously it's, it's been a gradual process. We have the largest database on the harvest of, of wild foods uh, in the temperate world, globally. No one else has. Conservation Vision now has the biggest database in the world with respect to this. This is for recreational harvest, of course, Jeff. We're not talking about you know commercial yeah. harvest. No, at no. Sea. Recreation, all recreational harvesting. Uh, and we are talking. I, I, I can't give you all the detailed figures, and we, we have a very careful strategy of release of this information that we're working on with our team. We have a big team working on this continuously. Um, but, you know, we are, we are talking a gargantuan amount of food. We are talking billions of meals. Wow. Billions. That's, now, how, how would you get so much data? Is it, uh, is it through each state and province in Canada and the U.S.? Uh, just uh, like our harvest reports that our hunters and anglers provide to the to the, yeah. the provinces and states, obviously. Now, with that, Shane, uh, I'm sure there's an error of margin, would there not? Just based on the fact that we do have delinquents. Uh, we've, trust me, we have them here in Cape Breton that uh, yeah. that don't file their reports, obviously. And uh, yeah. that that does become an inherent hurdle, obviously, I'm sure. It does. But the good news about that is and this is my science background, we want to come out with the most conservative numbers. 
even the most conservative numbers are, are mind-blowing. No one has ever thought that this was at such a scale, believe me. And that has, you know, that has, that has a lot in it because you have to be careful how you, how you explain all this to a broad public, um, that it's sustainable, that we've been doing it for 100 years in the North American mm -hmm. model, that we can continue to do this and probably increase it if we did what I would like to see us do, which is manage the land for wild food instead of non-wild food. Um, but uh, so the people who haven't reported, and just like the people who don't bother to buy a permit or a license, <laughs> there's a few of those out there too. There's They're still eating them. I'm not condoning it. I'm not encouraging it or anything. But you know what I mean. So we will be coming apples, out. With, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we will be coming out with minimum estimates. Gotcha. Uh, but even those minimum estimates are going to be in the billions of bil many billions of pounds and billions of. Wow. I mean, it, it's, and that's that's not even including fish. Jeez. We are just finally because what we had to do was we we work with 62 administrations in Canada and the United States. Now you. I'm sure all of your listeners who've had any engagement with government, and I worked in government for 33 years, so I have <laughs> uh, can only imagine what it's like to work with 62 governments. But that's what we had to do. And they were all, I must say, very helpful. But it does take a long time. But we also then had to go into the literature and find the body weights, the, an average continent-wide body weight for every one of those species. Then we had to determine what the dressed weights of all those species were. Wow. Then we had to figure out the consumable meat that would come from the dressed weights so that we got down to figures that when we release them to the public, nobody can say, oh, you're just using round figures, and that includes the hide and you know, the head and the hooves. And, you know, so that's an exaggeration. So you make a valid point, Jeff, but it's in our favor in the sense that that means that any figures we come out with we're going to be able to say to you know people who inquire, if anything, these are minimal estimates, and the real estimate is considerably higher. Wow! And you know, in 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 our provinces and in this country of Canada, and in many parts of the United States, we have enough scientific knowledge to increase the wild food production on our landscapes enormously. If we were to choose that as an option, if we made wild food a priority, and mm -hmm. even, a, even a low priority in this country of Canada, we could massively increase the amount of wild food available to wild harvesters. How we move that through society and all of that, we can leave that. But my main point is that instead of always looking at a landscape as a place for a mine or a, or, or a new mall, or another ski resort, or a um, uh, you know another forest allotment, or whatever it might be. Not that those things don't have a place, but mm -hmm. instead of always looking at it that way, we never think about well, what is the food value that we're losing? I'll bet you in Nova Scotia, there's nothing in your Environmental Assessment Act, just like in Newfoundland, that allows anybody in government or in the public trying to review a proposal for some sort of industrial activity to even consider what is the long-term loss of wild food as a result of that development. It doesn't even enter the equation. It's, it's interesting that you should bring that up, Shane, because uh, a few months ago, 
I was fortunate with some of our members, and I'm the president of Port Mori and Wildlife Association. We were fortunate enough to to be invited, uh, which which doesn't happen often, to a biodiversity uh, uh, symposium, I guess, uh, that our local government had had. And uh, some of the stuff that was talked about uh, at our roundtable, anyway, one uh, there was a consultant present, and uh, he raised the fact there about well, there's so many what ifs when it comes to development and why don't we just, and, and he touched on something similar to what you just touched on there. He said, why don't we just make the provisions there that say that, Hey, that this moose herd is in the area. Why not just say, Hey, let's include them into us. Uh, we, we know they're in the area. How do we know, or how can we predict with definite cer- certainty that, that moose herd over time will not move into this industrial development. Uh, and uh, anyway, he had some valid points, obviously. And one topic was brought up there about the loss of a herd and something like you're talking here, uh, the value put onto it. And uh, that was a, it seemed to be a taboo topic, uh, to be quite frank, when we started uh, prying into that figure. Well, what happens when we lose it? Uh, there's, there's an economic figure there, obviously for, uh, hunting licenses, uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and as you put it, meat value, obviously, right. Uh, yeah. as well as conservation monies that go into things. So it was, it was kind of a taboo subject there that even our local government didn't want to venture down that path, unfortunately. Mm. Well, I mean, these, all of these transformations take time, but to me, you know, what traditionally has happened in arguing in favor of hunting and especially angling to a lesser extent, uh, uh, you know, has been, you know, we, we've been pushing back against social trends where a lot of people are being separated from nature. Fewer and fewer people are obviously engaging in hunting activities in, in, in Canada and the United States over time. And we've been constantly trying to work against these headwinds in society. What I looked for was something that would allow us to sail with the winds in society. And one of the major winds in society right now is this preoccupation with health, healthy living, living forever. Everybody wants to live forever now, uh, and stay and look 20 forever. That's another mm-hmm. trend that's out there <laughs> in society. Uh, and to find really healthy food. I mean, this is a this is the whole organic food movement, the the locavore movement. You know, all, all these things that have happened. These are these are winds in society, forces that we, in the hunting and angling community, did not create. We ha- we can take no credit for them. They they just have evolved. They've emerged, but they can be winds at our back. They're not headwinds that we have to fight. We can work with the, those winds like a you know, like a schooner, you know, we can tack with those, with those winds mm-hmm. and, and use them to the advantage of these activities. And that's a completely different narrative than what we have been trying for the last 50 years. I don't care what organization you name that's been defending hunting and angling by and large, they've been fighting against the changes that have been coming out legislation, opinions of more, you know, people who are more protectionist oriented or have an animal rights philosophy or whatever. Which, by the way, you know, I think all viewpoints have a legitimacy. Uh, but we have been preoccupied 
and we've been on the back foot. We've been on the defensive all the time. Well, this wild food phenomenon allows us to change all that. And the value of the Wild Harvest Initiative is that no one else has data. Lots of people like to have a game dinner or things of that nature. That's mm -hmm. all positive. But we need something big. We need something that the media will look at. We need something that's rich in data, that's real. How many meals? How many people? You know that. How much is it worth? Those kinds of things. And the Wild Harvest Initiative is there's nothing else like it. And and, and I noticed under the Wild Harvest Initiative the the age demographic change for those hunting currently. Uh, it just uh, I think it was uh, what was I looking at here? Uh, 55 to 64 in 2011 seems to be the more predominant one uh, based on 2011, obviously. Uh, and then we look at uh, 35 to 44, that was in 2011. And if you revert that back to 1991, those numbers are pretty telling because back in 91, it seemed like an older demographic for age uh, did a lot of the hunting and harvesting, obviously versus uh data put out in 2011 so the it, it seems like the the younger generations now uh are are, are are picking it up that's based on that data that i just briefly caught my eye there uh, i don't know what would be the the influx there of the younger generations because it seems when it comes to the hunting aspect more so than ever uh, it's harder to get younger generations involved obviously and that's that's just my point of view from uh, my experience but uh, maybe you might have a comment or two on that Shane yeah I'm not sure what data you're looking at there because actually what's certainly happening uh, over time is that the you know there's an aging demographic in the hunting community that's still true so just to make sure that the listeners understand that and this is a problem uh, in more than one way. Um, the reason we have an aging community of hunters when we look at it, of course, is that we've had fewer numbers of young people coming into the activity overall. Um, but it, what that sets up is a really problematic situation where the, uh, the recruitment is low, so fewer calves, if you will, are coming into the population. Uh, and eventually, these, this older cohort is going to die off. And so if we look ahead and look at both of those numbers, and it's just like a caribou population, um, if you have too few calves coming in and you have a lot of your animals aging, eventually what happens is those animals, they drop off, they fall off, and they fall mm -hmm. off quickly. And you end up eventually with fewer and fewer replacements for every age group in that in that population so what is almost certainly going to happen for hunting that we despite all of our efforts over time uh, what is certainly going to happen for hunting is we are going to see a further decline in numbers even as we start to build new recruits into the population you know it's inevitable we're going to be squeezed by these factors because they've been around a long time but if we do not find some way to bring young people into the activity, then that situation is going to get worse and worse over time until, you know, it's only 1% of the population that might be hunting or something, which is true in some European countries today. So this was another reason why I started Wild Harvest. Because, you know, 25 years ago or 20 years ago, 
you might have gotten in hunting because your buddy did it or all your friends did it or your uncle had a farm and you went to visit him or your dad did it or whatever it might be. <clears throat> Society has changed massively in that period of time. You know, we are not going to recreate the boyhoods that people of my age had. That day is gone. It is not coming back. But what, again, is out there and what, again, we see signs of is that young people in particular are the ones who are really becoming concerned with fitness, with, with health, with lifestyle, longevity, with, uh, you know, spending time in the outdoors, all those kinds of activities. And they are also the ones who are becoming primarily interested in the locavore movements, the healthy food movements, everything from brew pubs to, you know, to, uh, mm -hmm. to, to farmers markets and things. I mean, it's young people. I mean, we have a lot of young people, not only from Newfoundland, but from other countries that have come to Newfoundland now and moved to rural places to set up these little kind of, you know, local enterprises based around healthy food, and good coffee, and good beer you know, whatever it might be. So I think, again, we're not going to be bringing young people into hunting <clears throat> at the same rate we did previously because everybody does it or because we live in a rural place where, you know, I can hunt on my dad's land or my uncle's land or my aunt's property or whatever it might be. <clears throat> a lot of that is changing. What is also changing, however, is this reliance on healthy food, and that is changing in our direction that is a benefit to us so i believe the way to recruit young men and women into this activity is to tell them that they can be that outdoor experiences are very healthy increasingly we know this even from medical science that there's real benefits in being in the outdoors number two you can be in the outdoors and as we say in the wild harvest initiative there's lots of ways to harvest you can harvest wild mushrooms you can harvest fiddleheads you can harvest medicinal plants you can harvest wild grasses, you can harvest wild honey, you can harvest maple syrup, you can mm -hmm. harvest fish, you can harvest wildlife, you can harvest firewood. There's a lot of shed antlers. There's a lot of things you can harvest. So while you're being healthy in the outdoors, you can also be acquiring very, very healthy foods. And two of the best ways to do that in large amounts is to become involved in recreational, legal hunting and angling. And I think you know, there'll be a lot of little blood vessels and capillaries that will help nourish this this new growth. I talk I talk about it as the renormalizing of hunting in society. That's what I want. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the only way to do that in modern society in 2021, um, uh, 2020, 2021, is to be able to talk to people about something that's relevant to them today. And that's food. And the beautiful thing about the food angle is it doesn't matter if you're in a rural community or in an urban setting. Sure. The young people in both those places want this healthy food and this healthy lifestyle. So we go from a, a narrative that has the urban population as maybe, you know, kind of a risk or a negative kind of force relative to hunting and angling to all of a sudden being able to transform that where most of the people live into something that could be a powerful positive force for these activities well Shane that's uh that's a wealth of knowledge uh to, to take in throughout the whole podcast to be quite honest with you it's uh you are 
totally a book of knowledge when it comes to this and the experiences and uh, what you're doing with the, the Wild Harvest Initiative is, uh, wow, it, uh, it, it's a true eye-opener, to be quite honest. And uh, it, everything that you guys are doing there, I'm personally very supportive of that uh, because it really does put it in an entirely different perspective, obviously. Well, you should contribute to our uh, to our stories on our in our website. You know what? Uh, we'll I, reach uh, out I, to you. I, I, I reach out. I, yeah. I have no problem. Uh, uh, nor does uh, the any well the organization I'm with. Uh, if we can uh, aid in any way, reach out yeah. to us. I'm sure we can contribute something along the lines to, to assist you guys. Uh, it's you, you have an alliance that uh, is truly extraordinary. Impressive. It's impressive. It's it's, yeah. it's very impressive. Uh, and it's growing. It's it sure is. Uh, yeah. To have that many governments work collaboratively is, to my knowledge, unheard of. Yeah. Uh, it it's, is. It's it's shocking. Ah, uh, to be quite honest, Shane. Uh, yeah. uh, I've got one viewer question here, uh, and I'm pretty sure Shane, we've touched on that already uh, throughout the the show uh does shane have any tips on trying to educate the anti slash haters of hunting uh trapping uh i have been successful to some extent by having open discussions and trying my best to educate but like shane said some are totally not willing to see both sides well i i appreciate the comment and the question and and i can relate to the experience but i i have to tell you that uh, I've had the opposite experience too. Um, I did a lot of work with uh, Sierra Club for a number of years, um, and um, you know they certainly had member. Some of their membership at the time were were against hunting, uh, obviously. Um, and um, yet, in speaking before their board and at their uh, large conventions and so on, it was surprising the number of people who came up and were open about talking about these issues and what was really interesting is some of the at that time they were there were ladies who were probably in their 70s who came up and spoke to me and was saying this is some about 10 years ago that you know they had not engaged in these activities themselves but as children they remembered going to their uncle's farm and he was a hunter and he would have deer and he would have waterfowl and so on and so forth and he had dogs and and how fondly they remembered all of that. So at one level, they may have been kind of against hunting, but when you started to relate it to a personal experience, all of a sudden the first thing they reached for was a positive memory of someone they respected who had been a hunter. Um, so uh, I would only say that we have to keep at this. I have had people in some of the major anti-hunting organizations in the world uh, who I have corresponded with. I mean, you have to understand that in many cases, um, people who are against hunting are totally honest and sincere. They just don't want to see animals killed. And they, you know, they, they have this perspective. Uh, and many of them, you know, care for animals. Some don't, but many do. And, uh, and so the result is that, uh, you know, you have, you, you have to, treat the, the viewpoints with respect. And every hunter, I would ask every hunter and angler listening to this podcast, this question, two questions. 
Number one, if you really love wildlife and you're really fascinated by these animals, and let's say your life was completely different, your life had not been how you grew up and who you met with and who your parents were and where you went to school and where you got a job and all those kinds of things. What about it had been completely different, but you were still really interested in wildlife? How, how would it be impossible that you might have become somebody who didn't want hunting to occur because you loved animals, but your lifestyle was very different? And even on something as extreme as animal rights, I am not a supporter of the animal rights movement. That's not where my philosophies lie. Mm-hmm. But, but, but I ask this question to a lot of hunters because we have to challenge ourselves too. If you own a, anybody, whether you're a hunter or not, if you have a pet you love, let's say a dog, it could be cats, it could be a horse, it could be whatever. Um, I, I ask this question. What rights would you not give them? What rights would you not give an animal that you love that's part of your family? And in my opinion, we love them just as much as we love our family. That's that's my personal view. I know some people disagree, but that's my view. I've had dogs that I love every absolutely as much as any human being I've ever been associated with. And if someone asked me animal rights are a good thing, I would say absolutely not. But if someone said to me, you know, I'm going to take away the freedom of, of that animal you love, mm-hmm. or I'm going to put that animal in a circumstance where, where his basic needs are not being met and he's not free to, to exercise his natural behaviors and so on and so forth to some extent, what rights would we not give them if it was our animal? It's most people see an animal as part of the family, so they would have just as much rights as you and I. (laughs) As a matter of fact, we tend to do more for our animals sometimes than we do for ourselves. I mean, they dictate our whole lives. (laughs) And and, and you know what? I've said it before. Sometimes our our pets get better medical attention than us. Uh, (laughs) There you go. Yeah, that's very true. uh, It's uh, mind you, it's a pay service, but uh, they still uh, they still get. the best treatment they can get obviously uh yeah uh but uh shane uh i'm going to just bring up your website here for our viewers that are on facebook that are are going to see this obviously uh it's uh conservationvisions.com uh, uh if uh anybody wants to touch base with uh shane uh shane also has a twitter page a facebook page and a youtube uh, page or channel uh with uh, many of his uh, lectures and talks on it uh, as well. Uh, if anybody wants to reach out to Shane for any speaking engagements, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Shane, they could uh, reach out to you, obviously. Uh, I'm sure it's probably going to be after COVID or unless it's virtual. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, but for the most part, uh, they can contact you via your, uh, your website. Uh, the contact information is there. And, uh, yeah, they can... Uh, Hopefully, have you uh, do one of your talks and lectures at uh, one of their their banquets or fundraising events, maybe that they may have come up or or anything along that lines. Uh, I've I've noticed there that you've done it all through the U.S. and that. So uh, it's mm-hmm. you're you're a truly a book of knowledge chain when it comes to this field of stuff. And uh, I hope to touch base with you again uh, regarding uh, maybe a future uh, podcast to to update us in the wild wild initiative uh because uh that uh 
the wild harvest initiative sorry uh, because that's something there that is very intriguing i must say and uh a lot of people are going to to see that and uh ask him a whole pile of questions down the road i can see it coming yeah well thanks very much jeff i I, I appreciate your time shane and uh thanks for being part of the the coast to coast outdoors podcast uh i really appreciate it and uh again thank you for the the almost hour and a half that we had to chat about things because that's uh truly amazing there to, to hear from yourself on that all right very welcome jeff my best to all your listeners take care Thank you, Shane. Have a good day. All the best. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye. So, folks, there you have it. Uh, We've had uh, CEO uh, of Conservation Visions, uh, Shane Mahoney, uh, on the show today, uh, speaking about conservation. We've touched on moose. We've touched on caribou, woodland caribou. We've touched on uh, the Wild Harvest Initiative. Oh, my. It's... uh, it's uh, he's Shane is truly a book of knowledge when it comes to that field of uh, stuff. And uh, I, I can't wait to see what the, the Wild Harvest Initiative uh, data they provide out uh, in uh, future publications has in store uh, uh, as well to our listeners. Uh, thank you again. Uh, truly appreciate it. Uh, it's uh, enjoyable. Stay safe boat with a life jacket on and uh fish hunt enjoy it guys uh share your bounty when and where you can uh with that that's all i have for uh episode 12 of coast to coast outdoors uh if you can uh follow us on facebook like us on facebook uh as well as this podcast uh is available via audio on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, and spotify Thank you and enjoy your day.